This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatter Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. We've got our buddy Eric from Cube, not Quib. <laughs> that's right cube technologies you guys are down from calgary right yeah yeah we just flew down uh beginning of the week alex and i are our ceo and happy to be here Again. do you guys have to escape canada and like jump the border and i know with all the covid restrictions and oh stuff. yeah we we just said we were here visiting family for no I'm just <laughs> yeah we, uh, yeah they they lowered the restrictions on uh as on the date that we flew down so you don't need to quarantine anymore and we had to get a bunch of tests but funny enough nobody actually checked our test result which was it's pretty relaxing. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just like come, come on, on through yeah. whistleblower podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you guys are down here enjoying the sunshine i'm sure you're getting a little little bit of heat in houston it's been hot this week so. yeah i mean i i've spent a lot of time in austin uh houston's a different type of heat i mean uh, yeah i think i've been in steam rooms that were cooler than than houston here but it's yeah. great to be here you know it's like i used to i had a garage gym for years and i was like man it's like working out in a sauna here yeah, in yeah. houston it's like 130 degrees just sweating in oh, the garage so you get used to it yeah we, we had a couple of walks we're staying downtown and we had a couple of client meetings four minute walks and by the end of those four minutes, you're pretty, you're pretty wet. Yeah. I don't even like, I don't even like, like walking out to my car. Like if I leave something in the car and I ask my wife, I'm like, can you, can you just grab it for me? She's like, no, it's too hot. So this is a thing downtown that a lot of people don't know, but you have underground tunnels in downtown. And so that's why you don't see anyone walking down there is because everyone's underground walking in the tunnels. You know, funny you should mention that. We were out today and we're like, man, it's like kind of should be peak rush hour where is everybody mm -hmm. alex mentioned these tunnels and i was like what yeah it's like a whole underground really, city there yeah it's really uh i didn't know about it when i first moved here i don't know where for years my, yeah like three years <clears throat> i still didn't know about it and it blew my mind when i when i found out about it it's like you have this whole underground city yeah we got we gotta go check it out i mean yeah it's yeah, and when we leave a building like for me you guys are probably used to it but just like the the wall of heat that hits you, yeah. but then also equally when you get into a building, that wall of AC, the air conditioning, yeah, greatest feeling on earth. Yeah, it's, it's nice. So tell us a little bit about what you guys do as a company. Um, kind of give us that high level overview, the the two minute uh, pitch, and then we can dive into it a bit. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Cube Technologies, we're a Canadian based startup. We make uh, IoT hardware. Uh, think of it as a smart smoke alarm for methane detection. Um, so we started in Canada, there's a bunch of regulations around methane uh, reduction. So it's all enforced through this leak repair and detection program. A lot of that's using intermittent technologies. So you're, you're sending somebody out on site, inspecting a leak, finding a leak, and then repairing that leak. Um, you know, we thought of it as, well, it seems pretty inefficient that you have to send somebody out into a really far site. You know, we kind of think of the problem as you have a fire in your house. You don't want to send the uh, fire department coming into your house and inspecting a fire one, three times per year. You want to know if there's a fire from your fire alarm. And you want it to um, uh, you know, take or put out that fire as soon as it happens. Yeah. Um, you know, we come from an engineering background. Our founder's an engineer as well. And uh, you know, he developed a very simple smoke alarm to do that. It's actually a great story. You know, he came over from India as a, as a young engineer. He was living with a family. And their house was backed onto an abandoned oil well. And, um, you know, he had aging grandparents living with him. And he rigged up this thing, and it would send a message to his phone whenever the 
methane concentrations were exceeding a certain value and he'd be like you know, granted don't go outside you know serendipitously he met a bunch of guys um that uh uh you know were pretty prolific engineer or entrepreneurs in calgary gave him a bit of seed capital and that's kind of how alex and i got involved um but you know we're at a point right now where we're working with a bunch of customers in canada uh, where the first company continues monitoring technology to have regulatory approval um, and we're just helping uh, customers out there find leaks faster, uh, you know, generate the data that they need for ESG reporting. Uh, and then there's this whole new world of you know, responsibly sourced gas that we want to get into. But that was, I don't know if that was two minutes. That was a little No, bit, that was good. Mm-hmm. That was perfect. Digressed. Man, I love the, the idea that, you know, he made this device to monitor methane levels at his house. You know, just kind of out of personal protection and then you make it and it's like hey i bet this has a ton of <laughs> application across the industry especially you know in today's world where a lot of eyes are on methane and rogue emissions and esg initiatives you know i, I think that what we're seeing in the methane uh leak detection and capture space is pretty uh pretty unique so you know essentially you guys have this device does it is it like the size of a smoke alarm like does it look like that like you, you know say it, it, it looks like a cube actually oh does it there's the name all right how'd you get the name of the company there it is <laughs> yeah exactly no it's a you know it's a it's a fairly small box and we have solar panels um out on it and so the intention is to function as a smoke alarm i mean most guys in your house you check your smoke alarm every 10 years you yeah. don't really think about it <laughs> yeah. until it beeps right and you know we've want to deploy these at every oil site a lot of these oil sites don't have direct power or you don't want to actually build anything with direct power. You want to leave them out in pretty extreme heat and pretty mm-hmm. extreme cold, especially in Canada. Um, you know, we spent a lot of our time in the past two years just getting this device uh, in a in a very stable state in terms of its robustness from a hardware standpoint. Nothing, none of the uh, AI stuff that we're doing or the inferences or the dashboards is it would be meaningless without the actual data, right? Um, so we've been working a lot on that, and you know, we've been de- on. Sorry for using the metronome. You guys will have to help me out with conversion. You know, we were deployed. Yeah, in, this is America. We're, yeah, I mean, minus we're not 40, smart like the rest of the world. So. <laughs> we were deployed in like minus 46 Celsius, which I think is pretty close to minus 40 something yeah. Fahrenheit. And then, it was, um, you know, recently with Canada's heat wave, it's been uh, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, there you so, go. <laughs> you know, we're actually down here. Alex and I are down here with our field manager to deploy our first deployments in Midland, which we're super excited about, you know. Um, methane's a global problem and the yeah. market in the US is just so much bigger and working with US customers is just awesome too like they're you know, very technology forward and they you know, we see the US market as less of like a regulatory push but more of like hey you know as operators we need to do this and we want to get in front of it and it's great for an emissions reduction story it's you know every MCF of gas we don't leak we can produce and sell but it's also, also a great story for investors and customers that are looking for responsibly sourced gas yeah you brought up such a great point with uh the producers here in america because everyone talks about gas leaks in producers and they're polluting the atmosphere and i'm like look if these guys have an economic solution to capture that gas why would they want to let their product go they want to to be able to sell that right Mm -hmm. and so that really i mean you look at american producers one they want to do the right thing. A lot of the oil and gas companies I've ever worked with, don't get me wrong, there's, I'm sure you can go find a handful of crooked ones, but most companies want to do the right thing and they care about the environment. So they want to utilize technologies where they can um, detect 
methane leaks. But then from the economic perspective, it's like, hey, they're letting product go too. So they want to, you know, mitigate any leaks that they have so that they can put that gas into the pipeline and sell it. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think it's very clear for us when we speak to guys like, you know, this, just the concept of waste seems wasteful. Nobody wants to be wasteful of their time, of their capital, certainly not all um, the uh, resources that they're producing, right? Um, I think, you know, for our value proposition, it's like we're doing continuous monitoring, but we, th- we think of ourselves as the most accurate, low-cost continuous monitoring system out there. So, um, you know, the benchmark that we compare ourselves is the OGI cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make it as if you if you're having to choose between what's currently approved, which is the OGI camera versus new technology, we want we want to take the cost at a, a, as a, a factor out of that equation. But all the other you know, value proposition, you, know, you can detect the leak when it happens, not when it surveys a big one. So you you reduce that waste. Um, if you have um, a bunch of sites, you know we don't we don't want to just do these single site pilots. We want to monitor all your sites. You know, imagine if you have you know, hundred sites, right? Mm-hmm. If you know what, um, out of each of these, and you know, a lot of all the studies on methane, um, you know, leaks show there's this weird distribution where ninety percent of the leaks come from ten percent of the, the leak sites. I know I'm throwing numbers, but it's it's kind of it's that the weird balance. principle, exactly. Yeah. Um, but with intermittent surveys, you actually it's difficult to figure out which out of your site, your hundred sites, are the leakers. If you have continuous monitoring. You're continuously calculating the uh, volume that are being leaked. You know, let's say you have a million dollars in repair capital for that year. You want to be able to spend that repair capital as efficient as possible. So you can say, okay, I got a hundred sites. Um, all of them are leaking, but two of them are leaking the biggest. Um, you know, I'm going to spend my time focusing on repairing on these ones. You know, we think from a regulatory standpoint as well. Like especially in Canada, you know, they recognize oil and gas. Companies have been hit. These new regulations are additional cost burden. They have these mandates to reduce emissions, but they also have a mandate of making uh, oil and gas industry economic. Um, and so we kind of recognize both those forces in the market. And we want to be able to say, hey, here's a technology solution that allows you to figure out where your biggest leak. So you get both. You can reduce the emissions, but also do it as capitally efficient as possible. So is the, walk me through the actual lead detection itself and how it technically functions. Is the, the cube itself the sensor or do sensors attach into the cube, data transmission, kind of like walk me through that whole process? Yeah, so the, the hardware, it's, so cube is an end-to-end solution. So it starts at the hardware piece. So okay. that is what's actually sitting around uh, the fence line of a site. So uh, it's the box itself. So within that box, um, we've developed a, basically a, a sensor hardware platform. So... There's all the power management communication module that's sitting on the motherboard. And then on top of that, there's this modularized gas sensor unit. So we have slots for up to five different sensors. Um, and we're working on our next iteration, which is going to have more room. But basically, you can put in different gas sensors onto that. So mm. for a lot of our customers that are in you know, operating sour sites, we'll put H2S and SO2 sensors on it. Mm-hmm. For people that are operating near farmlands or that have odor issues, we'll put a VOC or, or a sensor on it. So... That is what's actually detecting, and that's sending that continuous monitoring data using LTE or satellite or LTE right now to our, our servers. So that's the kind of middle piece, and that's where we actually take all the gas readings along with meteorological readings. So we measure temperature, humidity, uh, wind speed, temp, uh, wind wind direction, and then we create these models that look at okay, you know, if you imagine a, a plume of gas, right, mm-hmm. um, and you have spot points or that you're measuring, can you recreate if in 
the wind is going blowing in a certain direction, what that volume would look like, and then what that volume came from in terms of the source. So that's kind of where all the AI piece comes from is, are you able to take these spot measurements and create an uh, inverse dispersion model that says, okay, this is where the leak came from, comes from, and this is how big that leak rate is. And if you multiply the leak rate by when you first detected that peak, you know, this is the, the volume of the leak, the area under the curve. So you know, we built up a, a great data science team that does this, and we've got some pretty unique approaches to data science that we think is um, you know, pretty innovative, and I'm really excited about it personally. Um, but all of that's kind of the first two pieces. The last piece is the dashboard itself, and that's what our customers interface. So that's a web-based dashboard. This is where you can do a bunch of different things in terms of investigative work. And, you know, Alex and I are former petroleum engineers. You know, we would have been end users of these products had we stayed in operations. Um, you know, one of the things that we, like, as an engineer, love product design, thinking about as a former customer, what would I like to use? And if I yeah. was a site foreman, here's what I like to see. If I was the emissions manager responsible for all the ESG reporting, this is what I like to see. If I'm the VP you know, or you know, someone senior at a publicly traded company where I get investors asking about my emissions profile, here's the type of information I want to see. So all that is, you know, we're putting a lot of our emphasis. I mentioned, you know, we've been focusing on the last two years on hardware development. A lot of the focus now is on software and the dashboard and the AI piece. Yeah, I was going to ask about your background. So you're a petroleum engineer by trade. Uh, did you work up there in, in Calgary? Is that where? Yeah. So tell I, me a little bit about your career before. Yeah. You... So I studied mechatronics engineering, which is uh, what? Like, yeah, it's a combination of mechanics. Robots. Like, uh, <laughs> robotics. <laughs> Robot megatrons. Uh, but yeah, so Alex and I actually uh, we met at school, university. Uh, we were both engineers at the time. Um, I started my career after engineering school uh, as a development engineer at Talisman Energy. Yep. Mm. Um, you know, assets. Primarily, I was working in the mining. Uh, you know, unconventional. This was during the unconventional booms, late, yeah. early 2010s. Um, you know, really enjoy the job. Um, I uh, kind of towards the middle of my career there, I was doing a lot of field development plans for the du or for well, the Duvernay and Monty, building a lot of these production planning. Uh, plans out in Excel and, um, you know, in comes this software startup called Intersight. And Alex and I actually ended up working there. I was employee number 12, Alex was number 16. Um, you know, it was more of a consulting thing, but I've always been interested in the software side of things. Um, so made the move from operators. Intersight's huge now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. We actually, Alex and I met up with a couple of guys who are still in Houston that, you know, have worked at Intersight since day one, but now is... And they've gone through a series of private equity ownership um, mergers and whatnot. And they're, you know, from an employee from employee number twelve to I think they're over a thousand people. Which That's crazy. The core <laughs> mergers. It's actually awesome to see. Like it's, you know, you reminisce about those days. Um, the good so, old days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, we had a lot of fun there. Like Alex and I were down in Houston or Australia together, uh, help open up the office down there, and did a lot of the LNG work. Um, you know, CBM was a big thing, uh, still is now. And then Alex ended up going to Houston with Enterside. I had always wanted to go back to school at some point. I did my MBA in London and then spent a couple of years management consulting kind of in London and later in Seattle. And then, you know, had always had this entrepreneurial itch that I wanted to scratch. Um, Alex was working on this cube thing for a bit. Um, and Alex and, is here with us today, but we oh, don't yeah. have a fourth seat or microphone. So he got 
yet sent over to the side, but shout out to Alex for <laughs> yeah, being Alex here with us. Alex realizes this is, uh, you know, he's got a, he's got the voice for radio for sure. He's got the voice for radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, long story short, like, uh, the opportunity kind of aligned that, um, you know, Alex is doing something that, you know, combine a lot of the stuff that I study at school in terms of mechanical and electronical engineering, combine my energy background. And then it was an opportunity to scratch an entrepreneurial itch. And on top of all that with COVID, um, my wife, girlfriend at the time, my wife was in Calgary and I was in Seattle, you know, kind of converged into this thing, do something really cool in Calgary. And yeah, that's kind of long story short. So you guys started what, two years ago? Yeah, so Cube, well, Tej, our original founder, um, started in 2017. Okay. And then Alex and I have been kind of, or Alex has been helping since about 2019, and I joined um, back in 2020, pandemic. Mm. So right now in the business, I mean, you kind of touched on earlier that um, I think you've got a pilot out in Midland. You guys are going out there tomorrow. That's what, that's what you told me. It's going to be your first trip down to uh the wild west <laughs> parts of texas so um i'm hyped for you i always get excited like um it's like i had some uh friends from china go to midland last week and they sent me a picture they went and bought a cowboy they asked me where they could buy a cowboy hat and so i sent them to uh peewee dalton's <laughs> and sends me a picture of him wearing a cowboy hat in front of a pump jack <laughs> um but it's a it's a great place but for you guys um you see you know these it's kind of different markets for you guys up in Canada. It's a lot more regulatory pressure from the operators down here. It's probably a little bit more, um, capitalistic, um, you know, forward thinkers that are looking at, Hey, how can we, uh, deploy new technology? It's not necessarily coming from regulatory burdens, but just from companies taking the initiative. Do you guys see scaling down here in, uh, Texas and other parts of the U.S., or do you think that it's kind of a balance between Canada and the United States? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, for us, starting in Canada was really great. Um, you know, we, I mentioned, you know, how we kind of got started was we uh, apply for a bunch of grant funding in Canada. You know, we live in a, in a really nice country up there where, you know, there's a lot of funding available for innovation, especially related to emissions reductions. Um, and so part of how we really got started in the beginning was through a lot of these grant funding. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of the emission reductions focus on clients and emissions in Canada, um, but it's allowed us to develop the technology and uh, to, to a place where we feel very good about deploying it in, um, more commercially down in the States. Um, you know, from a rough market size, there are seven times as many facilities in the U.S. as there are in Canada. So much bigger pie, you know? Yeah. For us, like, you know, when we think about our mission, it's, um, you know, obviously reduce emissions, um, but also really help operators, right? You know, when we think of our jobs as operators before, like, want to produce oil and gas as cost-efficiently as possible. You have, nowadays, you have all these other things to do, emissions, um, ESG, reporting, um, you know, responsibly sourced gas. There's all these other things that, you know, we want to be able to help those operators focus on what they want to, they should be focusing on and take the equation of, um, you know, act as a smart smoke alarm, right? Yeah. If there's a leak, here's all the information you need to go to fix that. Um, so, you know, methane is a global problem. It's not a Canada or U.S. problem. We actually have ambitions to grow internationally as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we want to do this in a pretty systematic way, in a more thoughtful way. Starting in Canada, moving down to the U.S., both proximity and just uh, appetite for this kind of technology, like, 
you know, U.S. offer and Canadian offer as well. You know, definitely want to do the right thing. Right? Yeah. And, um, they're very forward thinking and they see the writing on it. Like, you know, we see regulations in Canada as like early stages. The regulator is wants to collect as much data about the different technologies out there as possible. But, you know, everything that we've seen and what our bet is that these regulations are more like stringent. You know, how do we develop a technology that is can meet the regulations today at a cost-effective manner, but um, can also meet future regulations in terms of uh, emission reduction targets and data to prove that you've done that. And that's kind of what we, you know, we're, we're trying to design something that is cost-effective today, but you don't have to go out to site and replace a piece of hardware in order to meet those future regulations. Um, so that's kind of how we think about it. Um, and, you know, in terms of scalability, like, I go back to the hardware, like, you know, we want to design one piece of hardware so we have fewer SKUs to manage and products. Yeah, I was going to say, when you're in the hardware game, that's a challenge in itself. Oh, yeah. You know, just with, with supply chain and manufacturing and getting everything put totally. together. It's, yeah. uh, there's not a day that goes by where I don't get an email about some potential day. But yeah. you know, it was an interesting time with COVID to start a hardware business, right? Like, Oh, yeah. You know, just talk about supply chains being wrecked. Yeah. You know, just... We uh, we will, I mean just to give you an example the other day we're we're preparing this deployment out in Houston or in Midlands right and we're waiting on these batteries from China and uh, I guess they've had an outbreak of the Delta variant near the factory yeah um, the customs officials who clear our package to leave the factory can't enter the building and therefore it's delaying us entirely jeez and things that you don't think about but you know from a um, you know we kind of. On our good days, we like to view problems as challenges. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, we think starting a hardware business in the middle of a pandemic that is affecting all global supply chains, you know, from everyone from the Teslas and the Apples. Of the well, I was going to say, it's like you look at like every major auto manufacturer, they're dealing with oh, you know, yeah. chip shortages. And so a little old, you know, startup cube over here, like you guys aren't going to get bumped to the front of the line exactly, you know, when it comes but, to parts. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Liquid Frameworks. You know, we talk about all this cutting edge technology every single week. And what's crazy is that a lot of EMPs and OFS companies are still managing their field operations in Excel and on paper in 2021. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It's such a pain, it's time consuming and all in all, just really inefficient. And luckily for you, Liquid Frameworks has been making people's lives in the field and the back office so much easier for years now. Their field effects platform streamlines communication between accounting, field operations, and office management, all with the touch of a button. Now, trusted by some of the leading teams at Key, Basic, Stallion, Liberty, Superior, and numerous others. And you can hear from them directly at the Liquid Frameworks Connect Effects Conference here in Houston on September 14th and 15th. So like I mentioned, their customers who've been utilizing the platform will be chatting about different ways that they've been able to leverage the platform to really streamline and optimize their operations. So if you're still stuck on paper and Excel, or Excel, I guess, uh, and thinking about finally making that switch, this is a great opportunity to come out and hang out with your peers and scope out some really cool tech. We've got a link to the registration page uh, in the show notes. You can just click those, take you right over the website and use the code evolve or die, no spaces for $100 off your ticket. Learning how to deal with those and kind of coming up with contingency plans and you know being aware of different um, methods for sourcing these parts has been you know, great learning experience for us, and yeah, we're also lucky in the sense that we're we're relatively small right now. We don't we're not building a hundred thousand or hundred thousand unit orders yeah. yet. Hopefully, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's. So, do you guys are y'all assembling all of these in house too? And does that happen in Calgary? Like, 
Are you guys just doing it in the office right now, or do you have like an actual like manufacturing? Yeah, yeah. No. So we we assemble like everything's designed and assembled in Canada. A lot of our components come from different parts of the world, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, the the assembly is is pretty. All all the smarts in it is in the the calibration, the sensor technology, and all the inferences, and that's yeah. pretty deployable. Um, once the hardware's locked, it's like Lego pieces putting it together. Yeah. Um, you know, we'd like from a, just a kind of um, cost perspective and efficiency perspective. Um, you know, there are opportunities to get them all assembled in Asia, for example, and ship, yeah, ship over them over products, yeah. finished products. You know, we're also looking at do we just ship every parts down to the U.S. and get assembled in the U.S. Yeah, manufacture it yeah, down exactly, in West right? Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the assembly is not not um, not the difficult part, but yeah. You know, one of the things that we were proud of is like you know a lot of the people that we've hired, especially in Canada, as well as you know, we're growing a team in the U.S. is a lot of them come from oil and gas backgrounds. In Calgary, a lot of people, you know, there's been you know, quite a bit of uh, economic turmoil since 2014. You know, a lot of our team is former oil and gas engineers that we've been able to uh, hire and train, and you know, they're they awesome. they understand the problem because they would have been an end customer, similar to Alex and I. But yeah, you know, they're working on something that they're passionate about, and it's great to see. So, you know, we're building a technology, we're building a solution. But one of the funnest things about my job is building a team and a culture around that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I think it would help, kind of me and probably a lot of people listening understand better the position in the market would be you've mentioned that you guys are going to be kind of like the more cost effective way for the operators. So let's dive into a little bit like of the alternatives, like if they're not going with you and you know, why are some of these other methods more expensive? Yeah. Um, so I, I think if you think about methane detection, there's a couple different scales to think about them. The couple of simplest one is like, there's a, a spatial scale. So where are you me- measuring relative to the potential resource? So, um, there's satellite companies, aircraft, drones, OGI cameras, and then fixed sensors like ours. And then within fixed sensors or stationary sensors, there's a bunch of different technologies. That's spatially. And then there's the temporal scales, which is core, you know, tied to the spatial. Like, how often can you measure? So, you know, satellites, you're, if you're talking about orbital satellites, they measure every you know, rotation, airplanes, whenever you fly, OGI cameras, whenever you send a crew out. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that there's definitely a place for the you know, GHG sats of the world and Kairos of the world because, you know, they're able to detect really big leaks in very remote locations. Like, yeah. if you find a leak in, I don't want to name any countries, but you can inform the UN, there's a massive leak, thousands of kilograms per hour. Sorry about the metric units again. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're talking about massive, <laughs> massive, massive leaks here. And, you know, that's, the like, cubes is, is likely not going to be there yet, but you can detect that using a satellite. And we think there's a definitely market for that. Do you have any ideas to like, so the, the, those big leaks that you're talking about versus these small leaks that you guys detect, but there could be like a million of these small ones. Yeah. Is yeah. there any, do you have any idea in the market like, says to, I don't know if there's any stats around that as to it, it depend- these contribute to 60% of all the leaks or it something. It depends on where you're, um, uh, what, in which region you are, but I, I was kind of super long way to serve. But we actually have a great infographic that kind of explains this on on our on our website as well as on LinkedIn. But like all these different technologies have the different detection limits, so there's a minimum threshold that they can detect. And then if you look at the distribution of leaks, and I'm not going to name numbers because I, I, they're not exactly on the top <laughs> of my head right now. But there's a like satellites. Let's say I'll throw a number: 200 
kilograms per hour is the lower limit. You can't detect anything below that. You know, most leaks on an oil and gas site are going to be well below 200 kilograms per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having a kind of broad or a lower detection limit allows you to detect um, things that are you know, smaller. And being low cost allows you to deploy more of those sites. So, um, you know, in Canada, there's about, you know, let's say, 50,000 of these regulated facilities that need to be monitored. But there's over 300,000 wells that are uh, potentially leaking. But uh, individually, very small amounts, but collectively a big problem, right? You, it's very um, cost inefficient to send somebody out there to inspect 300,000 wells. Yeah. But if you could put a low-cost device that's, you know, 10 Thirty, forty dollars per month to monitor that that um, that well, and you know it's a lot more economic to do it. Um, there's a, so I think if you look at the competitive nature, what we're kind of thinking about is if we can bring down the cost of monitoring at the lowest points, you know the volume of things that you mm-hmm. could economically monitor goes up significantly. Yeah. So uh, you know when we think about um, you know our revenue, our growth, it's we want to take the, the the hurdle of you know the value proposition of piloting this technology as low as possible. So you know, you're just picking between um, if assuming that the detection technology is the same, you're picking the lowest cost, and then you're able to justify those costs and say I can deploy this not only in every single presser station, but every single well out there. And so you know we want to monitor everything. I think there's a lot of value in the data, and we also want to help operators reduce their emissions profile in every single one of their producing assets. So, so I'm curious in the how long have you guys been pushing into the American market? Uh, very recently, actually. Like, you know, we've been very, you know, we're a pretty small team. A lot yeah. of our funding has been tied into the Canadian market. Um, we are in the process of um, migrating down here. It's only been in the last like couple months that we've started. Yeah, so, so maybe you guys don't have maybe you don't have an answer to this question yet, but I'm kind of curious. With you know, in the Canadian market, there's obviously the regulatory factors that mm-hmm. factor into kind of pushing these kinds of innovations mm-hmm. and, and these kind of technologies to be needed. And then on the you know the public ENP side here in the states, you know you obviously have like the ESG factors and things like that. So you know investors are kind of pushing that. I'm curious with say maybe private operators of maybe the same scale and mm-hmm. some of these public ones. If there's that same kind of internal feeling that we need to to do something about this, mm. or or if not, it's kind of a more of like a cultural question. I think like so. I ran into this engineer the other day. I was driving home from Midland, and we stopped at a hotel in San Antonio, and I'm at the pool, and I run into this engineer for one of the more well known private, independently owned uh, companies out there, and he's talking about you know they're putting uh, vapor recovery units mm-hmm. going and retrofitting all of their batteries. And I mean, his comments were it's just the right thing to do and it's economic for him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that question probably varies across different types of operators, yeah. but definitely see some that are doing it. Yeah, that. for sure. And I think it's a very growing sentiment. Like there's obviously the public um, sphere where you, you know, the large majors are making these you know, pretty big and ambitious commitments. And that's, you know, they want to make good on the, those commitments. But what we've seen a lot is actually, like, especially private equity backed companies. Mm-hmm. Um, private companies that are, and a lot of it is, you know, the, the, the LPs of those private equity customers are demanding, hey, if we're going to give you guys money, like, you know, we want you to focus on energy because it's a great place to invest in, but we also don't want to 
create more emissions. So, they want to fuck the environment. So show us what you're doing yeah. and not fuck the environment. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's this whole world about, um, you know, if you're an EMP company, you're looking to raise money. Like, you know, we could see a world, we envision a world where if you can prove, show the data that proves that you are low emissions intensity, you're the cleanest producer, that you should be able to be rewarded from that. Not only in the product that you sell, but in the cost of capital um, that you're paying to. Yeah. To, well, um, it's like, you know, there was a study from the Environmental Defense Fund and, you know, they've gone and surveyed all of these wells and I can't remember the percentage that showed, but I mean, there's actually a high percentage of locations that weren't emitting any methane. So it's possible to drill and extract oil and gas without emitting any methane. It's, it's a pretty possible. large percentage too. Yeah, it's possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I mean, how's that not a selling point to investors when you say, hey, we produce hydrocarbons. And we do it as clean as possible. Yeah. Look, and we have the data to back that up. Exactly. And the key thing is the data to back it up, right? Yeah. Like you can, and one of the things that we see as a, as a gap in the intermittent technology is you can send somebody out there and you may not have a leak that day, but a leak may spring out the day after, right? Yeah. And you wouldn't know until the next inspection was six months down the road. Yeah. And that um, also works the other way as well. Like you may think that you're a clean operator because you're going out there and you're surveying and mm -hmm. you don't have a leak that day. But the next day there was a leak. And so even mm -hmm. though you think you're a good operator that's not leaking, you potentially could be. For sure. Like um give you an example. One of our uh, one of our best clients up in Canada, like, you know, they had they're an operator that is around a lot of farmlands and um, you know, they experience odor complaint issues. Um and we take and the regulator up there takes that quite seriously because it's a health hazard. And, you know, the operator, our customer is faced with some uh, shut in orders. You have to shut down production until you can figure out what's going, what's causing all these leaks. And, you know, having these fence line monitor to tell you what the wind was doing, how much the production was spiking, and then knowing relative to the site where the complaint was coming from, like we're now giving them the continuous data to say, hey, you know, the house to the east of us complained about an odor issue. Here's all the data that shows that the wind was blowing in the the opposite direction talk to the next guy over yes, right? it's so well over yeah there's the data to prove that you're not the culprit but also yeah. equally so like you know if they did find oh it's blowing eastward and we are the culprit of that we can proact as the operator they can proactively address those issues before it goes to the regulator and you know our, our customers one of the things that we didn't even realize is like our our devices can be used as a, a better stakeholder engagement and one of the things that we did with them actually recently, instead of deploying cube devices around their site, they actually deploy them out to their uh, nearby farmers, landowners. Like, yeah. Hey, listen, help us monitor this. This is, you know, we're, we're part of the community. Let's, we, we may not be aware of things that are coming onto your site, but now that we have this device. That yeah, you set them around the perimeter of the actual landowners. Yeah, exactly. yeah, monitor that. Yeah, you'll see when you go out to Midland that. Midland smells like oil and gas. It is like it's got a very distinct smell. And even if you go out in like more uh, western parts, like um, old fields outside of Andrews or eastern New Mexico, I mean, it just reeks mm. of gas. Like you can just smell it, and it's very distinct smell. Um, on this box, like we don't have a cube in front of us. Like how big are we talking? Is this something like I can hold in my hands or? Totally. It's, uh, I mean, it's about, I guess, 12 inches big. by about 15 That's kind of how inches. I was like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's. Size of like a small, uh, like igloo cooler. 
kind yeah, of exactly. kind of that yeah. size. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so solar the durability of this thing, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, it's built for high heat. It's going to be in, you know, extreme cold temperatures up there in uh, Alberta. Um, but like, as far as like weathering and everything, you know, you got these components on the inside of the box. How, how does it actually sniff the gas? Like, are there vents on the side of, of the box where that's how the sensors are accessing gas and how does that, you know, how do elements like out in West Texas, it's just desert, right? So you don't want a bunch of dust and sand getting into this box yeah, and no, corroding it. it. So yeah, I'm just like it's, sniff. I just mentioned like this nose. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's 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 a lot of the design aspect that we put into our, our hardware. And it if you think about the box as like the there's a sampling chamber in there. So we actually have these wind vanes that direct air into it, and then we have a fan that is taking the exhaust. So that's how the samples go in. And so we're measuring data once every second. Yeah. Uh, and there's all this compression that happens so that we send out you know, smaller data packets without losing information. But um, so that's kind of the, I guess, the physics of how the air molecule or the gas molecules get into the sampling changer. We take a reading and then we exhaust so that, you know, we're not contaminating the sample. The mechanism of which, how we actually sense it, kind of related to your previous question about different technologies, we use low cost um, electric, a mix of electrochemical and um, metal oxide sensors. So, the beauty about these sensors is they're incredibly sensitive mm-hmm. and they're also mass produced because they're using a bunch of different uh, air quality monitoring applications. So um, that's kind of the, the, the pros. The cons is that they're incredibly sensitive to a bunch of other things like yeah. temperature, relative humidity and whatnot. You know, a lot of the work that in addition to the hardware robustness that we've been doing on is how do we get these, let's call them $5 to purchase these low cost metal oxide sensors calibrated so you, um, they're as good as a reference monitor, like a laser-based uh, reference monitor. Yeah. Um, and that's what we spent a lot of our time in the past year working with uh, some experts in this field to do. And we've designed a whole, our own uh, printed circuit boards to do all this with the resolution that we think we need uh, and all the calibration. And that's kind of the, I guess, the secret sauce of all of this is uh, how we get to the low-cost piece is we use mass-produced, low-cost compo- components, but... Um, Calibrate them. Calibrate them, yeah. compensate them for temperature and relative humidity. And, you know, recently we've been testing um, re- relative to a Picaro, which is this $150,000 gas analyzer. And, you know, the results are incredible. We were kind of blown away, to be honest. Like, the $5 thing. <laughs> Press ourselves. Yeah. yeah, we were like, you know, we had correlation coefficients of above like 0.8 on some of these things. And in our Midland deployments coming up, we brought our gas analyzer down to um, – to just do some baseline and obviously for our own uh, purposes, but you know, to show clients like, hey, you're never going to put a hundred or fifty thousand dollar gas analyzer, but we can show you that if you did do that, you know, our results are going to be uh, analogous. So yeah, again, going back to the low cost, accurate, and continuous. What's the what's the, like the radius of one unit? I mean, is this going to be one per well pad? one per lease, like how far can these things reach out to? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'll, I wish I could show you a video of all this. and like well, a Make it hard, man. You got to be articulate and explain it to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> so the way, like, the box is stationary, right? Yeah. The air and the gas molecule has to travel to the box. Yeah. Um, you know, awesome thing about Texas and Alberta and BC and Canada is there's always a Prevailing wind direction. Twenty, yeah. yeah 20. So there's a lot of good tra- natural transport that happens there. Yeah. Um, we 
uh, do a lot of testing up in Canada with these devices. And we're, um, and before we selected these, the sensors that we're using, there's a lot of uh, literature, a lot of research has been done in this space using the very sensors that we're using. Um, you know, one study before we picked these sensors, you know, they were showing they're able to get clear detections up to one and a half kilometers from the site. Oh, wow. We conservatively deploy within, we say one sensor has a detection radius of about 100 meters. Yeah. And there's obviously, you know, I talked about the limits before, but you know, we think that within that 100 meters, if you think about a radius, uh, we can catch you know, leaks equivalent to an OGI camera. So depending on your pad size, if your pad size is you know, 25 by 25, then you could have one device on the prevailing wind direction. Yeah. And as long as you're down on the least side of the prevailing wind, you should be able to capture most of it. All of it, yeah. You know, for some of our larger deployments and, you know, big um, batteries or gas processing facilities, gas plants and whatnot, you know, we'll deploy four or five. Um, you know, we charge on a per do a per device basis. That's so. what I was going to ask. What's the business model behind it? Are you guys, you know, because you have a hardware and a software component mm -hmm. to it, so is it per device plus access to the data platform, you know, SaaS revenue? How do you guys do Yeah, it's, it's very similar to like a SaaS platform. So there is a um, kind of a small upfront component where, you know, effectively pays for the device and calibration installation uh, of it. And then there's an ongoing piece, which is on a monthly per device basis. So think about it as your iPhone or phone. Yeah. Printer. You pay for the device and you pay for the online. Yeah. Um, a mon we call it the monitoring fee. Um, our, you know, going back to lowest cost, right? Um, the fewer devices that we can deploy onto the site without losing information is what we are trying to do. And that's what a lot of our data science team is focused on in addition to all the inferences is how can I monitor this site given the wind, given the geometry and complexity with the fewest sensors as possible. Yeah. If I can do that, those are savings that I can pass down to my operator. Therefore, I can potentially convince them to deploy more of these devices into other sites as well. Yeah. So um, you know, that we typically right now will deploy like max of like four to six devices. Um, in some sites, we have two two devices on them. Yeah. How do they do? They just sit out there freestanding, or do they mount to tank batteries? Or yeah. So I'm just I mean, thinking like someone driving up and just like picking it up and driving off with it, or like you know, it's funny, it all or <laughs> funny you should ask that because we were in in Midland, like in Canada, a lot of sites have fence lines around them. Yeah, no, I'm not like, in Midland. Look, I come from Midland. I know what happens out there. That's yeah. why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, so we have a, like kind of two uh, methods of installation. It's really easy to install these devices. You know, 20 minutes a single person can strap these onto a, a fence line yeah um we also have a tripod system where put some sandbags on the tripod and yeah we, you know we have internal gps so if things does move and it starts driving down somewhere at 80 miles per hour it's probably uh <laughs> gonna pick up yeah. <laughs> we just shut it off remotely um but yeah we typically deploy these around the fence line and you know you mentioned tanks and feed patches and you know the pretty small boxes pretty deployable almost anywhere yeah could be. Yeah, I always think about like just growing up in Midlands, like you're driving down lease roads, yeah, shooting shit with shotguns, and like, oh, what's that box? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, we were, you know, we were. Uh, there's like this, the box itself, and then there's all the mounting mechanisms. Yeah, and we're like, we got to pick a color for these. Like, obviously, those all those rust inhibitor stuff, and we're like, should we brand it? Like, our kind of corporate colors are like this green color, and we're like. I feel like the green, especially in like Texas, sticks out. You gotta sticks make it camo. Yeah, we almost have to like make color. It, yeah, <laughs> we have to make it rust color so people just think it's, it's kind just of like dummy a, iron. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a piece yeah. Of old so pipe. 
if uh, someone's listening, you know, we got lots of engineers that are listening to the show that are uh, upstream. Uh, if they're working on current methane detection and capture, where can they find you guys? What's the, uh, I'm sure you have a website. What's the uh, URL to the website? Yeah, so the the website's uh, cubeiot.com. So Q-U-B-E-I-O-T.com. And, um, you know, we're obviously on LinkedIn, Cube Technology. Cool. Um, yeah. This sounds like uh, Canada's loosen up, loosening up travel restrictions a bit. So you would probably be down in Texas a bit more. So For sure. if anyone's listening and they want to catch you the next time in Midland, just uh, reach out. We'll drop the uh, link to Cube's website in the show notes. Man, thanks for coming on the show. This is really interesting stuff. Thanks for having next, me. Next time you got to bring one by the office. So oh, I can we will. See it. Yeah, <laughs> we can can bring it in, check luggage, and yeah, time, but definitely. And thanks for having us, guys. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to see pictures of you guys in uh, cowboy hats in front of pump jacks. Yeah, we'll make, we'll make that happen. <laughs> we'll make that happen. All right, guys. Uh, take two seconds. Uh, leave a rating, review, share with your friends. We'll catch you in the next episode. Come, come, come.